the high pressure approach may seem to get results, but I don't think that a high pressure approach is the best way to treat people. As we approach decision day next Sunday, our intention is not to pressure anyone, but we do hope to compel you to consider making a decision for Christ if you are ready to do so. This morning, we begin a a two-week decision day series called Vital Signs. Doctors check blood pressure, cholesterol, heart rates to, to measure our health. And this message series will challenge us to each evaluate two key responses for our spiritual health. Invited, today we will explore the response to becoming a Christ follower. And then next Sunday, invested. We will discover why membership in the church matters. So today I want to answer the question, invited, why does baptism matter? If you're contemplating a decision for Christ, I I hope to answer some of your questions so you will understand what are your next steps. For those of you who've already committed your lives to Christ and, and been immersed, then I want you to listen carefully and to better prepare yourself to share this invitation to Christ with those you love. I encourage you to save today's bulletin. It contains a list of some of the key Bible verses that we will quickly reference in this message. But right now, I want you to mentally identify someone whom you want to see come to Christ. Picture that person whom you can influence to consider making a decision for the Lord. God originally made mankind to to live in a, a personal fellowship with him. Adam and Eve were originally sinless. They were perfect, and they they enjoyed this close connection with God, their their maker. But along the way, they, and then we, chose to sin, and and that disobedience disrupted that utopian equilibrium that that God had designed. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, reminds that all have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. That means you, and that means me. If we could attain moral perfection on our own, then there would have been no need for Jesus to die on the cross as our substitute. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Salvation is is spoken of as a gift. It's a gift that's available to all, but it's only claimed by some. So I, I want you to understand that the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus. Jesus declared in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, the apostle Peter added, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. He also explained in in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, 
that Christ died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. In a politically correct world, the the suggestion that there is one way and, and only one way to heaven, and that is via Jesus Christ, may sound exclusive to some. That's because it is exclusive. But here's why it's reasonable. If God made the world and redeemed the world through his one and only son, then it would be logical that Jesus would be the sole means to restoring our fellowship with our maker. And any alternative attempts, however sincere or well-intentioned they might be, would be ineffective as a, a means to deviate from God's prescribed plan. God has clearly detailed the response steps that we are to take to accept this generous free gift that he is offering us. And Jesus spoke of a change of heart that is needed. Matthew 18, verses 3 and 4. Jesus said, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was, was teaching, and he brought a little child up and sat him on his lap for a, a visual aid, for an object lesson. And he said to the adults, unless you become like a little child, you have that change of heart, that humility, you're never going to heaven. You, you must become like a child. And Jesus made it clear that in order for us to have salvation, we must come in humility, swallowing our sense of self-sufficiency and, and any pride, uh, any proud independence. John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus declared, I, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And, and then in verse 5 in that passage, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. We need a spiritual rebirth, not just a physical birth. We must be born of, of, of water when we're born, and we must be born of the Spirit when we undergo a spiritual rebirth. Throughout the book of Acts, the, the history book of the early church, we see people making this consistent response to accept Jesus as their Savior to claim his grace that we've, we've sung about this morning. They came to believe that he was God's son who died in their places as a sinless sacrifice. And that knowledge moved them to remorse over their sins. They stated their desire to align themselves with him and, and then they were immersed in water as an appeal for him to wash their lives clean. The setting for Acts chapter 2 is the Jewish Pentecost holiday. This is taking place seven weeks after Jesus' crucifixion, the day when the church began. And if a single passage were to carry greater weight than another, it might be this original salvation teaching given on the first day of the church as for the first time the terms of salvation were outlined for all who would follow for all time. 
Listen to what it says in Acts 2, beginning in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They felt a genuine remorse. Verse 38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, why are we doing this? For the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It states that repentance and being immersed provide us with the forgiveness of sin and that God's Spirit comes to take up residence in our lives. And then dropping down to verse 41, it goes on to, to link repentance and baptism as being steps to being added to the church. It says, those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So let's review what happens at baptism. There are, are three vital results as we consider these vital signs of being invited into God's family. First, it, it says that we are granted the forgiveness of our sins when we repent and are, are baptized. It says that we receive the Holy Spirit coming to, to dwell in our lives. And then it says we are added to Christ's church. The Russian comedian Yakov Smirnov observed, Coming from the Soviet Union, I was not prepared for the incredible variety of products available in American grocery stores. Well, on my first shopping trip, I saw powdered milk. Just add water and you get milk. In another aisle, they had powdered orange juice. You just add water and you get orange juice. And then I saw it, baby powder. And I thought to myself, what a country. But some people mistakenly believe that you just add water to a sinner in a baptistry and you have a Christian. But being forgiven of your sins involves more than just getting wet. It must be accompanied by belief, by repentance by a confession of faith in Jesus. Most evangelical churches are in agreement about the need to believe in Christ and repent of our sins and confess him in order to be saved. However, many make baptism sound like an optional step. They suggest it's good but not necessary, and they omit baptism as a salvation response step. Why is that? Some fear that including the command of, of baptism might suggest that, that we are doing something to earn our salvation when really just the opposite is true. Why is baptism considered by some any more meritorious than believing or repenting or confessing? I've never heard anyone object I don't think it's necessary to repent. If I repented, that would make salvation a work that I did, something 
I earned. They don't, on the same basis, reject believing in Jesus, which is certainly a response to resist baptism as a personal work that earns salvation is illogical and contradictory. Baptism is not a work done by us as if we could ever do anything to merit or deserve salvation. Instead, it's just the opposite. It is trusting in the work of another, the work that Jesus did for us. And while baptism isn't humiliating, it is humbling. In baptism, an individual humbly, passively submits and places himself or herself in the hands of someone else, who then reenacts the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as he commanded. Well, what was the Apostle Peter's response when the crowd hearing that first gospel sermon asked, what must we do to be saved? How did he respond? Did he say, there's nothing you can do. Salvation is entirely up to God. You have no role to play in the process. No, that's not what he said. Did he say, pray this simple prayer of faith, admitting you are a sinner? No. He commanded, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Consider what the Apostle Peter, the same man who preached that first gospel message when the church began in Acts 2, consider what he wrote years later in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. He said, this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's nothing magical about the water in our baptistry. We don't have it flown in from the Jordan River and it's ordinary Batesville tap water that we're using. But it saves us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6 Verses 3 and 4 refer to immersion as being this connecting point with Christ's sacrificial death. It states, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We connected with his sacrifice on our behalf. We were therefore buried with him, again, clearly immersion, through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, that we too may live a new life. We're born again. We're forgiven. We're clean. We're starting over. And this passage teaches that being baptized connects us to the sacrifice that Jesus provides through his sacrificial death on the cross. And when we portray his death, burial, and resurrection through this visual reenactment of immersion, we receive the benefit of that vicarious substitution. Listen to, to Romans 6, 5. It goes on to say, if we have been united with him in a death like his, baptism, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his, heaven, eternal life. 
But when Jesus prepared to return to heaven, he gave his final instructions to the apostles. And in unmistakable terms, he instructed them in Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. The Bible declares that if one believes and is baptized, he or she will be saved. To those who object, well, it doesn't say whoever isn't baptized will be condemned. It says whoever does not believe. Exactly. Without that starting point of belief, there would be no purpose or value in baptism. And likewise, it does not state or suggest whoever believes will be saved. The the preliminary response of belief must precede the secondary response of baptism. To to be baptized without genuine faith would, would be meaningless. Baptism without genuine faith is ineffectual. It's, it's pointless. It's of no more value than a dip in the pool. The point is that a nominal belief that isn't translated into obedient action or response proves to be insufficient to save us. It's the difference between a lame faith and a living faith. James 2, verse 19, acknowledges, You believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe and shudder. That's a lame faith. The demons believe in the existence of God, but it's brought no repentance. It's produced no life change. It is impotent to provide salvation. And Jesus is is telling us our faith is, is joined to what we do. Our response defines the health of our faith, whether it is living or a lame faith. A living faith is one that translates into action. Everyone in the Bible who became a Christian immediately followed that mental belief with the action of a physical response of being baptized. For for almost 800 years after the church began, Anyone who became a Christian was immersed for salvation. History tells us that in in A.D. 753, Pope Stephen II introduced sprinkling as an alternate method to be used only in cases of of hardship. If someone's on his deathbed, we can't get him down to the river to baptize him. Uh, Let's splash a little water on him, pray he gets better. If he gets better, we'll we'll take him down and and baptize him later. And and that was really how sprinkling was introduced. And over time, after it had crept into the the church, it was more convenient and and simpler and and easier. And so it it became more popular. And in 1311, the Council of Ravenna voted to recognize sprinkling as being equally acceptable as an alternative to immersion. This human alternative was sanctioned, again, largely as a convenience factor 1,300 years after the church began. So the the real question for us is, 
do we today have the authority as humans to replace a specific command that was divine? At BCC, we're trying to replicate the first century church as closely as possible. And so we require that same response of immersion that they originally did. Nothing more, nothing less. Well, Jeff, are you saying that if someone isn't immersed, that he or she is lost? I'm not saying that, and I would never presume to speak for God on the matter of another person's salvation. I am saying that the Bible clearly commands us to be immersed and that man has muddied the waters with confusion. God will decide those matters. He alone knows what a person understood or didn't understand. He knows the opportunities people have had to obey him, and it is totally his call. Please hear me clearly. While I would never assert you are lost because you haven't been immersed, likewise, I could never in good conscience recommend to anyone, hey, don't worry about being immersed. It's probably not that big a deal. It probably doesn't matter to God. I could never say that. But why does this teaching matter so much? Oh, we don't want to maximize this teaching, and we don't want to minimize this teaching. We just want to recognize it and give it its, its proper place as emphasized in Scripture. Think about the example of Jesus. Jesus walked more than 60 miles from the northern part of his country down to be baptized in the Jordan River. And the temperatures in that area sometimes reach 120 degrees. And he walked on these dirt roads, and that kind of a, a climate in order to set an example for us and be immersed himself, even though he had no sins to wash away. So Jesus must have thought it was a big deal. Jesus walked 60 miles. Will you walk 60 feet to come forward and respond to him? Won't God still save a person even if he or she hasn't been immersed? I don't know. I don't have a scriptural basis of any example to reference. I do know that in the Old Testament story of Naaman, there are many parallels to the modern questions about baptism. Let's go back to 2 Kings chapter 5 and look at that story from the Old Testament. Naaman was the commander of the army of the, the king of, of Aram. And he was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy, this, this contagious skin outbreak. And he went to Elisha, the prophet of Israel, and Naaman went with his horses and his chariots and his entourage, and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house. And it says in verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger outside to tell him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. So here's this big shot, a pretty important guy with a, a commanding role in the army. He pulls up with all the chariots and, and the, the audience, and they tell the prophet, hey, Naaman's here. All right, well, we'll tell Naaman to go in the Jordan River and 
and dip seven times and his skin will be restored. You mean he's not even going to come out and talk to me? Does he know who I am? Does he realize how far I've come? And it says in verse 11, Naaman went away angry and said, I I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God or wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. And he said, you know, are are not the uh, Abana and the Farpar rivers of Damascus better than any of the waters in Israel? The the Jordan, it's, it's so muddy. I mean, we have a lot better rivers you know, back home, I, I've, I've come from Damascus. Couldn't I wash in one of those rivers and be cleansed? And it says he turned and went off in a rage. Verse 13, Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? He said, you're right. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him and his flesh was restored and it became clean like that of a young boy. Baptism is part of this test of our humility. It's a heart check on where we're at. In this discussion, you you need to understand that what saves us isn't belief or repentance or confession or baptism. We are saved by Jesus and our obedience to him. Galatians 3, 26, 27. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. These verses don't separate faith and and baptism as two separate acts, but connect them as a combined obedient response that produces salvation. The Apostle Paul said in Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. I think the question really comes down to, how can anyone who loves Christ resist and react? I know that Jesus commands me to do this, but I don't really think it's such a big deal, and I'm not going to do it. Baptism isn't just a perfunctory performance to be checked off of our spiritual to-do list. It's, It's a precious privilege, and it all comes down to submission. An attitude that is resistant to do all that Jesus has outlined for us in the way of obedience places its banner bearer in a precarious position in which self-will actually supersedes the Savior's will. It's really a microcosm of the larger lordship question. Will I allow Jesus to be the Lord of my life? the authority, or or do I insist on calling the shots? This is the heart of the matter, and at the same time, it's a matter of the heart and simple obedience. It's all about submission to what the Bible clearly tells us to do. And Jesus says softly 
but firmly, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If I believe in Jesus, if I'm sorry for my sins, if I proudly want to confess my faith in him, then instead of objecting, do I have to be baptized? The, the real question we should ask ourselves is, why wouldn't I want to obey every command my master has given me? Paul reiterated Jesus' purpose in coming to earth with this simple declaration in 1 Timothy 1.15. He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Batesville Christian Church is a grace place. We serve the God of the second chance. Every person is welcome at this church regardless of what he or she has done previously. We believe that God accepts any sincere sinner who repents and changes. We also believe that God loves us too much to let us remain like we were when he found us. And so through the work of the Holy Spirit, God begins to remold us and, and make the old new. He goes to work to change our practices, our pride, to help us overcome our, our habits, our addictions, to give us victory where previously we knew only defeat. And the result is a better life with Christ now and eternal life with Christ forever. Satan would love to turn this into a debate instead of a decision. And you can decide to accept Christ's generous offer of grace and, and hand him the steering wheel today by confessing your faith, repenting of your sins, and being immersed for the forgiveness of your sins. Or you can say, not today. And to not accept him has the same result as to reject him. Jimmy Rumalawang is a, an immigrant from Indonesia, and his family sent him to the United States because the persecution was so intense over Jimmy's pursuit of Christianity that they feared for his life if he remained in his homeland. When he arrived in California, he appealed for political asylum with the reason being religious persecution. It's a, a lengthy process which took over two years, and culminated with his going before a judge at the United States Federal Immigration Court in Los Angeles. His attorney asked for Chuck and Tim, who were both ministers, to come and testify regarding the, the truth that Jimmy was, in fact, a Christian. And when they arrived, the, the seriousness of the case was underscored. When Chuck was called to the stand, surprisingly, the attorney's were not the ones doing the interrogating. They stood before the federal judge himself, and he personally questioned the ministers. After, after Chuck was sworn in, the judge asked Chuck if he knew Jimmy to be a baptized believer in Jesus Christ. Chuck said yes, and he started explaining how Jimmy actively attended their church. He, he leads worship on our worship team, but before he could continue, the judge interrupted and cut him off. The judge stated all he needed to know was that he knew absolutely and positively that Jimmy had undergone Christian baptism. Chuck said yes. He dismissed him. 
And then Tim was called to the stand and asked the, the same thing, only regarding baptism. And afterward, the, the perplexed ministers who were there to testify to the involvement of their friend in their church, they, they asked the attorneys about what had happened. And the attorneys explained that sometimes radical extremists will try to infiltrate the United States by claiming to be Christians. And they will speak of prayer and studying the scriptures and going to church. But what a radical extremist will never say is that he has been baptized into Christ. Because they view baptism as being that turning point to someone's faith journey. So let me ask you this. If extreme radicals in other faith traditions believe that Christian baptism is so important, if our U.S. judicial system says baptism is so important, if Jesus himself commands us and believes that baptism is so important, then why would you hesitate to say yes? Why would you balk at baptism? This is not something that someone else decides on your behalf. The decision to be immersed is, is very personal. It's your decision. You don't do it for your parents. You don't do it for your spouse. You don't do that for your friend. You do it for the Lord. Would you pray with me? Your God, as we've opened your word this morning, I, I pray we've been listening to the, the nudges and proddings from your Holy Spirit. And that those who are apart from you will be drawn closer to you and want to yield completely in obedience, uh, surrendering, surrendering their lives in uh, the way that your son surrendered his life for each of us. We pray in his name. Amen. Just stand right now and today if, if you want to surrender your life to belong to him, to live for Jesus, then you are invited. We would love to talk further with you and if you want to respond right now by coming to the front, we'll, we'll visit with you after the service and, and help you with your next steps.